the hidden costs of innovation from telescopes to microscopes. How do images of exoplanets light years away affect microscopes that we can use to look at tiny individual molecules? What's the biggest mistake that you've made in your job and has it affected 11,000 flights? There are tiny little details that compound over time and a cost we have to manage as people doing the innovation. In today's episode, we dive into it to look at all the different angles from science, technology, and education. This is as good as we're going to look, I think. So we might as well just <laughs> roll, yeah, with it. roll with it. <laughs> Doesn't get better any better that, than this. That's the thing with the video podcast. We're about to switch to audio only. <laughs> oh, that that used to be the game when podcast first launched, and mm. you would do it from your garage with your buddy, and so that was the golden age. And most of no the- one cares what you. Look like the very, face for radio. That's how they invited a lot of celebrities onto these podcasts because you didn't need to do a whole wardrobe and makeup team. But now, I like the idea of it. Yes, but but now the celebrities all need a big entourage to pick out the outfits because all the biggest podcasts all have a video base as right. well. And so we're launching right into that space, although we're obviously not a very big. So one. if it's your first time here, this is Crossover Connections, our podcast about science, technology, and education, how everything's connected. My name is Jack Wang. I'm a scientist and microbiologist, and with me my co-host is amanda hello thanks for having me back jack amanda again because we're introducing ourselves to our audiences every single week you can't assume anyone is a return okay. listener just yet that's very presumptuous <laughs> can you give us a brief overview on who you are and what you do i have a phd in cell biology and i currently work as a manager of clinical research Terrific. And between the two of us, Amanda's background is in cell biology. That's right. My background is in microbiology. So we have the biologies kind of sorted, which is a huge statement. <laughs> biology is way too big a feel for any two individuals a huge overstatement. have it sorted. Mm-hmm. But the running title of this, other than our overall title of the podcast, is It's Not My Field. It's not exactly my area or, hey, that's not really in my wheelhouse because the purpose of this podcast is not for us to really talk about exactly what we do and the things we work on that's kind of at least to me quite boring to talk about my spare time depends on the situation (laughs) the focus of this is really to go out there and find articles about things we have no idea about we'll have a little bit of knowledge about but not not enough contextual understanding and that really helps us become more effective communicators of science in our day-to-day jobs at least that's the intent i don't know about you jack but i've had situations where i've been chatting to strangers at the bus stop or something something along the likes and they'll bring up some science news that they've read recently and I have no idea about it and I feel really stupid because they expect me to have some kind of comment on these things and if you know if I'm not up to date on the latest news they, they, they're going who are you thought you were a scientist why it's, don't you know anything about this it's not the latest research paper in your field that they think you need to know no no it's yet. the latest news article about something trivial that they think all the scientists must clearly know about it yeah Yep. But it's a really huge mystery as to how any piece of scientific work becomes obvious in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really a strange process. A lot comes through media releases. For example, one of the laboratories might have published a very interesting article that's uh, quite quite relevant to the field, quite exciting in, in the medical research field. We have a team who will formulate a media release in collaboration with the scientists because we want to make sure that you know the statements are all correct because as we know things can sometimes get overhyped by the media and once it's given the okay they'll often release it to multiple press outlets who may then pick up the story they may then come and film or 
conduct their own interview with with the scientists who are doing the work. It's a very top-down approach you've described, mm. very hierarchical. Mm. You have to basically make the breakthrough discovery first to have mm-hmm. any chance of going direct mm-hmm. to the media. That's right. And you're vetted and cross-checked and fact-checked. Absolutely. And anything that you say to the general public basically needs to be filtered out for any obvious inaccuracies before you have any chance of communicating it, right? That's correct. And I, I think it's reassuring to have that process in place. Peer review is obviously a, a process where your work, when you submit it to a journal, is vetted by other science experts within the field who give critical comments. They check the consistency of the work, whether the conclusions can stand based on the experimental findings. And just, just basically, it's a rigorous review process. The science that most people hear about that comes through official media releases, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you could have a certain amount of confidence in its accuracy because of all the vetting that has happened. That's not how most people hear about their science. Mm-hmm. Most people hear about their science via social media in this current day and age. That's true. And as you say, some of those are not even published in any kind of sphere. Theories or findings mm-hmm. or in some cases conspiracies, they get way more coverage on those platforms than media releases that we typically go through. Right? Yeah. So hopefully you can see that it's a huge opportunity for a lot of people to get into the space but also a huge risk for scientists to venture into talking about science more casually without all that Mm -hmm. vetting that Mm -hmm. an institution with media releases would typically provide. How nervous are you feeling about having it being dragged onto this podcast (laughs) by me? Because I'm out there. I'm talking about science all the time. I don't think you do that consistently. And so what are you risking by being on this platform? My reputation. Your reputation, your official professional scientific reputation. My integrity. Your, integrity. <laughs> your time, your, your downtime. You're risking your downtime. My downtime. Your downtime. And I think that's the real opportunity lost for young scientists because there is so much to lose. Mm-hmm. You say one wrong thing about the wrong topic at the wrong time and everyone thinks you're either a propagandist for some official government or... Mm-hmm. You're a fraud, you're a hack. It's very easy to tarnish yourself. But the way that scientific communication works, it's it's iterative. It has to be a dialogue. It's not dogmatic. It's not I That's monologue right. and mm-hmm. tell you everything you need to know, full stop. Knowledge is built upon iteration, upon constantly going back to investigate and testing. And reviewing, retesting. The is that, that hypothesis still correct? And the way that scientists talk to each other, well, I guess just academics more broadly, but in our areas that we know science, it's not at all vetted, right? Like we talk to each other at conferences, no one vets that. No, no, no one yeah. vets that, and it has to be it has to be messy mm-hmm. for it to get to the mm-hmm. point where we can distill it into a, into a version that is is meaningful and manageable. Anyway, a, a lot is happening in this space that is not ideal from the scientific perspective. You know, you'll hear a lot of scientists um, speak, and they won't be conclusive in what they're saying. This may indicate this. This suggests that it's not ever a be all and end all statement they get targeted for that you can't say for certain what do you mean don't you know that's not the case we all we're doing is working on the the best conclusions we can make at the time you know with the available evidence that we have and i also think scientists are not great uh, jury witnesses mm-hmm. because we like to tempo our explanations with well this would be correct 80% of the time. And the jury's like, what do you mean 80% <laughs> what do you of the mean time? 80%? There's only one case here. Like, is this the 80 or the 20%? So this is the whole disparity in communication. And communication is very much a discipline unto itself. Mm-hmm. That people go and do official 
decades worth of communication training. The scientists do decades of scientific training, which is the antithesis of communicating to a lot of different people. There's an art to it. There's also a rigor mm-hmm. and validity mm-hmm. to it. And it's something that we hope to better hone through this podcast, just between me and you. But hopefully also raise the awareness and visibility among younger scientists that you have to put in the reps. You have to really find a way of right. explaining different things, mm-hmm. new things every single week and the first news article for today is something that is very much outside of our wheelhouse i'm considering just naming the segment not in our wheelhouse whose job is it anyway which is our recurring segment mm-hmm. hopefully recurring segment on changes in the employability sector around again science tech and education and this is relating to something that uh, if you're in the united states you live through it thankfully we didn't have to go through it and that is of course the massive delays on the 11th of january in the number of flights within the united states and i believe over 11 7,000 flights were delayed or cancelled, which is the largest number of flight cancellations since That's huge. 9-11. Since 9-11, okay. And that is a really scary thing because 9-11 was a terrorist attack, right? It was a real security threat upon a whole nation. What was the cause this time? It wasn't anything sinister to my mind, or at least it hasn't been released as being anything sinister. It's actually the boring is the reason of all. It was a computer glitch. Mm. Okay. Yep. And if you read the article, uh, it is the FAA outage. This is an article from Wired. Lays bare an essential system everyone hates. And that system is called NOTAM, which stands for Notice to Air Missions. And straight away, half of our very small audience has already fallen asleep because this is (laughs) software and acronyms. No what? No TAM. It all sounds very boring. My understanding of it was it's essentially a ledger which details current flight conditions, any hazards that may be encountered by the pilots and that it's released before flight. And then, you know, they're going through it and checking that. You know, everything's everything's in order. Okay, so I'm I'm falling that's, asleep. That's my very vague. I'm falling asleep already. <laughs> very vague understanding. Think of about it. ledgers no, and things yeah. like such mm. a such an archaic, boring thing led to such a mm-hmm. dramatic impact on people's mm-hmm. lives. That's a real disconnect that most people would have on this. It wasn't anything super sexy or super scary. It was just like a little piece of software. First of all, let's talk about how important this piece of software is. It seems to be regulating all sorts of flights, not Mm -hmm. just commercial passenger flights, but it also affected military flights. So the military also utilized the system to, I don't know, potentially regulate operations they're doing, hopefully Mm -hmm. not clandestine Mm -hmm. operations. Military flights were also affected by this outage. And again, not for a super scary or exciting reason, it came down to, as it turns out, uh, one single data file. And just one. Just of course. one. Just one data file. And I think it was one person's job to check that file and they screwed up or... Wouldn't want to be that person right now. That's right. And mm-hmm. then it causes 11,000 flight cancellations. Is that something you put on your CV? <laughs> well, it depends on how much you rescued that situation. So then you could claim to be the person who fixed Responsible it. Responsible for 11,000 fights. Being grounded. A leader and an innovator is, is what I would put on my CV if I was to own that. So before we, dive, a into, good spin. Okay. Before we dive into the weeds of it, I guess, let's take a step back. Many people who may listen to us now or in the future mm-hmm. could be young people looking for jobs and looking for new opportunities mm-hmm. and dipping their toe into the workplace. What would be your response if, let's say, you were this person who made this group? Okay, yep. yeah, so how would you deal with this as a professional, as a mm-hmm. seasoned veteran of your field? If you <laughs> as a up? seasoned mistake maker. Seasoned, I, you, you said it, not me. As someone who is a habitual mistake maker, not a habitual mistake maker. As someone who's like anyone has made a mistake, how have you mitigated that and moved forward? Because you're still here. You're still gainfully employed. So you've, you've clearly done something right, and my, myself as well, right? So we've all made mistakes professionally. What's the biggest 
mistake you've made in a professional workplace mm-hmm. that you've bounced back from. Well, we're talking about the ones that you haven't bounced back from. I could have been so much more successful. That's right. <laughs> What's the biggest mistake you made and how did you bounce back from? Within a lab environment, accidentally writing off something that's worth a few, a good few thousand dollars. It's not a great mistake to make, but I, my approach is always honesty. My boss knows I'm a very honest person. I always think it will come back to bite you at some stage if you're not honest about it. So... Fessal, I take the same approach when I have students that I'm training as well that I've been training in the past. And I say to them, you know what? You won't make the same mistake again. You will never make that same mistake again. I think I was unpacking something in in dry ice. It comes as this box full of all of these pellets. In a previous role. In a previous role. Not in your current role. Yes, no, just to be clear. In the pre- previous role. In a previous role. Huge box. It's packed to the brim with these little pellets of dry ice. You have to pack a lot in like 20 kilos to transport it to make sure it still stays frozen when it arrives. And so I just unpacked it. I had these boxes. It said item one of three, two of three, three of three. And I went, great. Okay. Got it all out. Of I come back the next morning and go to throw out the box. And there's this item just sitting down the bottom of the box staring at me. Mm. Um, I was a couple of days into the role at the time. Right. So it was just really horrible. How much would that item have been worth in your estimation? In US dollars? In US dollars. US dollars. In gold bullion. One US dollar in today's exchange rate. In, like, in gold bullion. A few thousand, probably. A few thousand. Maybe like $2,000, $3,000. Okay. So, so way more than your weekly paycheck or fortnightly that's, paycheck yeah, or monthly that's paycheck. Right. That's yeah. right. So that would have been yeah. scary. Presumably you earned up to it to course, whoever yeah. the account mm. holder was. Mm. And how was that received? You know, my boss just sort of said, look, it's not, it's not great, but mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it won't happen again. Yep. And I said, no, definitely won't. I unpack dry ice (laughs) bit by bit now. It's not a wonderful mistake to make, but a dishonest person probably could have just put that in the freezer. Sure. And pretended it was fine. And then someone would run an experiment and it wouldn't work. When I was first starting out, I was doing experiments on cells. And part of the protocol, again, this gets really specific, Mm -hmm. but part of the process of that experiment involves starting out on ice. Mm-hmm. So you start okay. the experiment yep. by putting yep. the cells on ice. As you often do, yeah. Mm. Put them in chill zone. For some, right? for, for some experiments, And then, yeah. of course, eventually, to do any biological experiment, you've mm. got to replicate the environment that the biological organism mm-hmm. lives in, mm-hmm. and we don't live on ice. So eventually, I was supposed to move the cells to an environment that was like 37 degrees Celsius, close to the body temperature. Okay. And I never read that far down, or I never realized that mm-hmm. that was part of the expectation. So for six months, I was doing all of these experiments, right. using all of these cells, mm-hmm. using all of these reagents, and way more than a few thousand mm-hmm. dollars worth mm-hmm. of material. I was just doing everything on ice, and I wasn't seeing anything right. in the results. I was seeing changes, but they were just wildfire fluctuations that weren't repeatable and then one day my immediate supervisor said, oh you know can i just sit with you and watch you do it <laughs> you know when they want to watch you do it step by step do you mind if i just sit and watch you like I, I, not that i don't trust you but can i just watch students you students out there if your supervisor asked to sit down with you and run something uh, that's right can i just watch you do something right. it's a very useful exercise well it turns obviously. out that's what i needed because yeah. well obviously this We've thing all been there. this thing to the incubator mm-hmm. to finish mm-hmm. the last step and i feel terrible like, i still feel terrible about it to, to, mm. to this day not just because of the resources i wasted but of the time that i wasted because that was during the very formative years right. of my training and six ev- months is such a long time every month is so valuable yeah you know? in a phd uh, it took six months for me to do all these experiments the mm-hmm. first time around incorrectly mm-hmm. but to repeat the same six months worth quick. of experiments took me less than a month mm-hmm. so at the end of the day if you are in a work environment that promotes professional development mm-hmm. 
the employee should be worth more than any one individual screw up. Mm -hmm. If let's say the screw up is focused on one item mm -hmm. or a piece of equipment. If you work with the company for five or 10 years, mm -hmm. not just the money that you're getting paid, but also the trust and the cost of replacing you, the cost That's of right. finding yeah. someone else mm -hmm. and retraining should be way more than any individual item. It's about your belief in that, this is a learning experience and hopefully your immediate supervisor will view as a learning yeah, experience right. as well. And, you know, my approach, I think, is always to offer a solution at the same time as being the bearer of bad news. Here's what happened, but I've arranged this. Right. Here's some options. Yep. I think it's always a good way to approach things. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm going to paraphrase at the HBO show uh, Industry, which I'm a big okay. fan of. It's all about the finance sector and young people trying to make it in Wall right. Street. Yeah, I haven't watched it. Okay. okay. And there's this uh, mentor there and he tells his protege, there's two times to tell me about a screw up. Mm -hmm. First, when you F it up. Mm -hmm. or when you've unefted it. So, yes. yes. So when you F up or when you unef right. it. So mm -hmm. either you've made the screw up, you just own up to it, mm -hmm. or you've figured out a solution already. Mm -hmm. Hopefully there's not a huge lag between those two events. Hopefully That's you right. can figure out a solution quickly. The shorter the better. Everyone can bounce back from it. A single mistake does not define most people's careers, unless it's like criminal and fraud and all kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It's just honest, procedural, incorrect inaccuracies. We can bounce back. In so, this case... Yeah, it wouldn't have been great if I made the same mistake a week later, which I didn't. didn't. <laughs> if I did experiments on ice for the rest of my career, then it's like, what's, what's going on here? Do you have a thing ice with... experiment do, specialist. Do you have a thing with ice? What's going on? Have you tried running that on ice? Are you owned by big ice? Like, what's going on? So let's come back to the story here. Yeah, sorry. Do you getting, think we're this, getting sidetracked. Do you think this contractor would have been able to bounce back? Because it was not a according to all the reports, mm. it was not a routine government employee. Right. Like many things with these big old pieces of software mm -hmm. like NOTAM, maintaining it over time is not one person's job. It can't be one person's job, right? If it's 30 years old, like very few people have careers in one location for 30 years. With something this important, it's a, it's a problem that there's not more redundancy in the system mm -hmm. and it's come down to one person making this mistake you know whether that person becomes the the full guy or mm. how much they were following protocol and procedure or not from my understanding this is mm. a, a third party external mm -hmm. vendor mm -hmm. that's coming to do this yep. uh, government contract then so it bounce back. Pro probably yes probably but yes i wouldn't i wouldn't go bringing it up at, <laughs> yeah, at work yeah. drinks or <laughs> There could be a little too much transparency. That's in this right. Case, there can the, be too much transparency. In the, in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into the weeds a bit more about the software. Mm -hmm. bit, okay. And again, this is not in our wheelhouse. That's the subtitle of, of our whole podcast. Mm -hmm. But we do know and we do, we do work with software very routinely. Maintaining this piece of software is estimated to cost 29 million US wow. dollars. Mm -hmm. And also... It's not slated to be updated for another six years. So, however, they've worked out the accounting and the budget. They, they oh, said, well, okay. hey, it wasn't due to be updated anyway mm. for another six years. Mm -hmm. And to do that, it would cost 30 million US dollars mm -hmm. roughly. And so, they're trying to use this as incentive or motivation to mm -hmm. say, hey, maybe we should be updating it before six years mm -hmm. time so we don't have this problem happen again. But they said, hey, it's an isolated incident. It's not a security risk. One person didn't follow procedure mm -hmm. and they were managing this one single file. Mm -hmm. So not much redundancy, doesn't sound like a great system, sounds very old and very expensive. In our setting, and I'll start first this time, do we have experience with software that doesn't seem to do that much, but is very expensive and very old and just doesn't go away? Of course. Yeah. Within universities and colleges, we're all working with software that is either really wide scale and mm -hmm. enterprise, so anything mm -hmm. in the Microsoft Office Suite or Office 365 
OneDrive, all those kinds of things. Outlook, we use those things every day. I mean, obviously, it would be a massive undertaking to try and change these systems, right? Which is why it doesn't happen. No, and Microsoft is Mm. known for just being reliable for a business, and you just have to adapt it for your workplace. Mm -hmm. So we, of course, are in that in that game in Mm -hmm. higher education, Mm -hmm. like like everyone else in the world, has its flaws, but by and large, it's pretty okay. Right, because if you have a problem, everyone in the world would be having that same problem. That's right. So the pressure is on to fix it. Mm-hmm. But then the other side of it is we've got all of these little pieces of software that at the time were cheaper to develop in-house. It was not feasible to go out there and find a company to do it for us. Right, okay. Or no company out there was doing mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. at that low scale. So you couldn't find anyone anyway. You know, it's not worth anyone's time. So all of these isolated pieces of software that are very functional, but they haven't moved on. And we need to maintain them, right? And holding on to the past is a bad thing in many, many respects. But in software, it's particularly bad because there's all these security vulnerabilities that hackers can take advantage of. So all of these pieces of software that are super old and they still run and it costs a lot to maintain. And mm-hmm. it's not because the people aren't good at maintaining it. Yeah. That figure of 30 million US dollars to maintain a piece of software. Does that sound reasonable to you given your knowledge of software in your sector? Look, it's expensive, but yes, it's probably, it's, it's very feasible. I think. It's sad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we have pieces of equipment, critical scientific equipment. They're really critical to people's experiments. Often they have a protocol or a procedure that they have optimized for doing on that particular piece of equipment. Even though it's old doesn't mean it doesn't work well. Well, it's still being used. It needs to be maintained. That number is is perfectly feasible, I think. Yeah, unfortunately. there's a market for it. Yeah, software is one of these Mm. things where it's invisible. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? Like, Mm. it's not tangible, but Mm. it's just never ending in terms of its mm-hmm. utility and also its maintenance costs. Mm. And the one final example I'll bring to this is mm-hmm. if you do anything creative, you probably need to use something in the Adobe Creative Cloud suite. Whether that be you're a photographer, you use Photoshop and Lightroom, or you're a video editor, you use Premiere Pro or Adobe Rush, or you're an illustrator and you want to use Adobe Illustrator or InDesign, all of these amazing suite of tools. And for the longest time, it was you pay a certain amount of money and you would own that piece of software, that version of it outright. So back in the day, you could buy Photoshop outright, cost mm-hmm. you a couple of grand, but then you would have that piece of software and use it forever. But then Adobe shifted to the subscription-only model, which basically is a never-ending service contract, right? Of course. But the cost of it, they were able to bring down because so many people rely on their products. So I don't know what the current pricing is, but... It's less than $100 a month on Mm -hmm. average around Mm -hmm. that ballpark. So for an individual business, even a small business, that might be okay to stomach Mm -hmm. if you were creating money off the creative stuff that you were doing. Mm -hmm. Everyone hated it because most people who are photographers, like me, we don't make money for photography. We do it because we love to take photos and love to take videos. Having Having to pay rent on, on software that's right. yeah exactly that feels terrible no, but actually just, yeah. that's what needs to happen mm. for it to be a living breathing functional product that doesn't have security risks and can serve as a lot of people we do have to pay rent on software it's right? interesting you say that because i you know my immediate impression is just always oh, some money grabbing exercise yes. but it's a very valid point mm. to keep it current and working then often yeah this and, is how it has to happen and the, the app store i roll my eyes again and app that says oh it, it it's a monthly app mm-hmm, fee mm-hmm. or there's like in-app purchases like, oh just make it free or give me a one-time fee <laughs> show but, me a lot of ads <laughs> but the thing is the app that you download that doesn't have that mm. and is not maintained mm-hmm. is that going to be the thing that lets your phone get hacked because it's not I getting maintained it, it has the security vulnerability yeah. that everyone's yeah. trying to patch up mm-hmm. so that's that's the mentality shift in the sector yeah you know? I, I can see that Although I do still kind of feel like I'm going to pay $5. Don't show me any ads. Leave me alone. <laughs> so I think let's say uh, someone comes down and says, well, instead of no TAM, we're going to release 
Notan Plus. So it'll be an ongoing subscription, just like Disney Plus. And then they guarantee... Just like Disney Plus. <laughs> just... Disney Plus is not going great if they're going into this business and making uh, Notan flight software. You can listen to the, uh, the, the guidelines in the voice of Mickey Mouse or something. Well, that would be a coup if that was the case. But yeah. I, I don't think that's uh, good for anyone involved in this. The development is baked into this, to the fee. Mm-hmm. That $30 million is not just... The next time we bother to look right, at the okay, software, to maintain the system. But it's like okay. every month you get mm. this. Maybe that's the model that it will move towards. That's certainly the model that the sector, the private sector, has moved towards. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you talk about government contracts and public sector and taxpayers' money, everyone's a little reluctant to say, "Hey, he's just a blank check. We're writing this company for." And what you don't want is you know the company to come back and go, "Okay, we're absolutely being replied." you know, relied upon for this, mm. just keep increasing our prices. Oh, Netflix. Netflix keeps <laughs> upping their price. That's exactly what they're going to do. What are you talking yeah, about? Exactly. exactly what they're gonna do. Yeah. But then yeah. you're willing to pay the price if the service is so essential. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a chicken and egg. And again, this is, is clearly not our wheelhouse, but it is no. very interesting in how flights can be relevant to our situations as mm-hmm. scientists mm-hmm. and teachers and professors because it all comes down to the tech and the software. That's right. Right? It's all connected. Probably put in a disclaimer that obviously these are our opinions and not not the opinions of our employers i record a bit now that we could put at the front of every episode mm-hmm. right? the views shared in this episode do not reflect the views of our employers or even ourselves really <laughs> <laughs> there's very much our own opinions uh, these are our own. from flights domestic flights being grounded all the way to space mm-hmm. recently the news headline around the james webb telescope which is a nasa endeavor by and large is sending back these absolutely breathtaking images of what they call exoplanets. And I don't know if you've seen these images online, but it's just something that looks very much sci-fi and very much like it's a CGI render. Like, it looks so much like the, the movies that you don't realize these are actual images captured by a real thing, not something yeah, that's drawn yeah, by an artist. That's right. The more I dug into the story, because I knew nothing about it, I just like to look at pretty images, right? The more <laughs> I dug into it, the more I realized this is actually really interesting from a science and tech perspective do you know much about these telescopes james webb and the hubble no. was the one previous to this Obviously you've heard about them but don't know much about them right so the first thing is of course like how far into space it could mm-hmm. project okay right? so that's one mm-hmm. consideration i don't know that much about light years and all that kind of stuff you know I, I watch movies and i know a little bit about it but i don't i'm not a huge trekkie or anything like we, that. we stay within our biology realm that's right we're not lane. we look at very very small things not mm-hmm. very very big things that's things right that are far away small things but but again the, the more i investigate the more parallels there to our work so that's the first consideration right so how far away the signal can transmit Mm -hmm. but also when the signal comes back how sensitive the telescope is at receiving that information right okay and what kind of information it can receive Mm -hmm. and we very much have to worry about that in our work yeah a lot of parallels to microscopy right that's right so in our work we look at very very small things with microscopes Mm -hmm. and it's not just the distance it travels because yeah it's a tiny thing because the microscope is this close to the sample really really close it's about what information can we actually gather mm-hmm. from that sample mm-hmm. we have to do all sorts of tricks and loops to get any information back that's from right, a sample yeah. scatter electrons we can label fluorescent things that's we can right. just mm-hmm. pass light through it or we stain it with different colors or yeah, exactly. we, we cut mm-hmm. it into tiny thin sections we've got all of these tricks just to get <laughs> as much information from that that's sample something as very tiny that's right and the issue with it turns out and mm. really again it's not in our wheelhouse <laughs> but the issue with traveling through light years worth Mm -hmm. of distance Mm -hmm. and time to get this image from interplanetary areas is that there's all this dust right 
and okay. scattered light, as you can imagine, from all these stars. Sounds like a microscopist's worst nightmare. So, it's all this optical nightmare, <laughs> right? So, when you design cameras, you want the lens it's and so the sensor to be I mean, really close. Yeah, so no the- concern with, with any dust in the way of our imaging. And, yeah, if I get some yeah. dust in my glasses, it drives me crazy. Yeah, me too. Let alone something yeah. light years away. That's right. And so, it's not just it can travel light years, it's that mm-hmm. when you get it back, how clean is this image? Right. And it turns out that the thing that makes James Webb able to resolve such clear images is that the type of signal it can receive and is really sensitive to mm-hmm. is in the infrared right. spectrum. Okay. We're not physicists, but we know a little bit about light pretty much, right? Light is measured essentially in wavelengths. There's different types of light. And most of the visible light that we see, we can measure within a pretty narrow band. Yeah. So that's pretty much uh, 300 to about 700 nanometers or if you want to measure it in terms of microns, it's anywhere up to like 0.5, micron. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a micron is one micrometer. So if you get a meter, if you can visualize a meter worth of distance, you divide that into a million bits, which you probably can't conceptualize. That's essentially how small a micron is. It's pretty much imperceptible to, to your physical eye. But if it's within that wavelength, you magnify big enough, you can see something, right? Because it's within a visible spectra, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. Anything higher than that and really lower than that too, mm-hmm. but really higher than that. Yep. Uh, so UV is about like 200, 300 in that range. Anything higher than that, if you're talking about uh, 0.7, 0.75, one micron, mm-hmm. that's considered to be not visible spectra. Mm-hmm. But there's still information in those wavelengths. We just can't mm-hmm. see it with our naked mm-hmm. eye. And infrared belongs in that category. And so there's all this infrared information in all the light around us, but our eyes can't see it. Hmm. But you know, I can see it, James Webb can. All the dust and all the light scattering that would happen through the coursing of information from space to the microscope, Mm -hmm. that is in the visible spectrum, Mm -hmm. which James Webb essentially has a filter, has an Instagram filter, applies to it, removes all that noise. Mm -hmm. And what's left is these amazing images that we see because right. they belong in the infrared spectrum. Mm-hmm. What's the parallel in our lab? Do we do much infrared work with microscopes? Not that much. It can be done. It is used sometimes. My understanding is it's not super reliable, at least wasn't when I was last using it. But we prefer to work in the, the visible light spectrum so we can see what we're doing. Of course. Uh, for microscopy, at least. Maybe fluorescent cell sorting, um, another technique that scientists often do. They're not as concerned because they're not physically looking at the samples, but certainly in microscopy, Alexafluor 488, GFP is something that people may have heard of, fluorescent protein that was originally isolated from, I think it was from jellyfish, yes. is that is that right? So, you know, when, when it was first discovered, all this talk of glowing mice and labeling proteins and you could see them fluoresce green. <laughs> yes, yes. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, green mm. is easier to see than red. Yeah. But red is the red is the next most common. So, right. yeah. but if you had a choice, if mm. you wanted the signal to be the easiest to visibly see, green, green, yeah. green is the way to go. Green's the way uh, to go. But you can go, I guess, technically as close to that invisible spectral line as you can. I think. Yeah. Some, sometimes we work with fluorophore called far red. Far red. Some people can sort of see it a little bit. Sure. Well, that's interesting you yeah. say that because I wonder mm. how NASA is deciding where to direct James Webb and point it at. Who knows? Again, not, mm. not I feel that's really interesting because. Mm. If they rely on the infrared information mm-hmm. to come back, mm. they won't be able to see it in real time. Yeah, that's a fair point. So, well, I mean, none of it's real time. Not our field. None of it's in real time, but that does make their, their strategy mm. for choosing which area to, to direct the 
telescope towards. Mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. really interesting. They're applying a filter on mm -hmm. the noise that's mm -hmm. coming back and removing all the visible spectra, yeah. which is most of the dust that's clouding our, our mm -hmm. vision of the, mm -hmm. the planets, these exoplanets. So they must have an area of interest they're looking at. And must then... have an area of interest. There are all these before and after images that are yeah. on the NASA website that I found. Yeah, before it's just all of this. This is very cool looking though, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a very extraneous signal yeah. on the... On one hand was the visible light spectra, mm. and then when you use the infrared information mm -hmm. with the invisible spectra, then it just looks much cleaner, much crisper, much sharper. And the only parallel that I know to this, because again, this is not our field, I keep saying that, is within the field of infrared photography, put uh, infrared filter in front of your oh, camera cool. lens okay mm. and so all the things you're taking images of are just the things that are infrared signal information right have, have you ever tried it or no i've never tried it. i'm really keen to... expensive and to get an infrared filter or well it's not expensive to get just mm. a filter because that's a really cheap way right, so right. it's a piece of glass really that yeah. blocks out all the non-infrared mm -hmm. light mm -hmm. but that's most of the light out there so yeah that's true okay your, your images become really really dark yeah you have to compensate for that by all sorts What's of other the work around then to capture so you you can either uh, basically just tell your camera to turn on for a very long time, so mm -hmm. have a very slow shutter speed, getting as much of that information as possible. Okay, right. Or you can jack up the gain and make it really, really high ISO and you'd get some image. Alternatively, you could uh, basically convert your whole camera sensor to only detect infrared information, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which you can do. There are companies that do that. There's oh, a lot okay. of forensic applications mm -hmm. for infrared photography oh, because okay. a lot of evidence is not visible within the visible spectrum. Right, okay. But if you image it, with infrared mm -hmm. you can see the edges of the stain or something like that much clearer so there are companies that do that mm -hmm. but it's a really expensive thing to do for a camera for your mm -hmm. new camera don't go and get your phone converted to infrared i think <laughs> maybe that's in the new iphone that's the shtick you know forensic people can just use the iphone instead of converting cameras my mom's gonna go what did you do to my phone <laughs> everything's so dark and everything looks absolutely crazy because the photos look crazy from it people look like ghosts like it's right, just okay. the real quality and if you oh, image i give that vibe off anyway give the vibe off <laughs> No, no I'm, I'm filming i'm filming you for the people who aren't watching this on the youtube channel this is a video podcast as well so if you're interested in watching the video podcast it's all live on the youtube channel mm -hmm. biolab collective but hopefully you're listening to audio version as well or instead of either way it's perfectly okay with us and you can find the audio version of the podcast on all the big podcast platforms apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher or your podcast player of choice now coming back to the idea of innovation in telescopes and the fact that James Webb is building upon the work of Hubble and becoming much more sophisticated within our field of microscopy. What is the innovation being? Seeing more and more detail. More detail, mm -hmm. right? So resolution, that's resolution, really common in photography as definitely. well. Definitely. Yeah. Also cost, I guess. Cost as well, yeah. yeah. Mm. More resolution or mm -hmm. scanning speed going quicker. Mm -hmm. yep. That's really important. Speed if, as well, yeah, of course. Of really course. important if mm. you're scanning if you living cells. If you something. That's yeah. right. Mm. Either looking at a cell that's moving or looking mm -hmm. at lots and lots of cells, then mm. you don't want to use one microscope to image 100 yeah, because it, it can be laborious. I mean, it takes a long time to image something. So yes. the more you can automate, the better. And mm. we talked about automation in episode one of the podcast last week. <laughs> now, the other part of it, as you said, is cost, right? Yes. And the idea of trying to make that cost. Well, it can go either way. Mm. Generally speaking, it's trying to massify and make it scalable mm -hmm. and bring the cost per instrument down mm -hmm. to an extent. And this is an article from Nature, which showcased the latest mini microscope, which has pretty good performance. It's certainly performance to cost ratio is through the roof because mm. it's estimated the cost per unit four US dollars because a large oh part of it is 3D printed. That's now 500 Australian dollars. <laughs> 
or one one gold bullion. I don't know. We don't we don't know how current. I don't know why we keep talking about exchange rates. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's just a bad time to be an Australian. That's some bad online shopping experiences. Yeah, it's just yeah. not not in our favor for the foreseeable no. future. Actually, nothing against the US dollar is is particularly favorable right now yeah. as of twenty twenty three. Again, the back to the. <laughs> I'm not an economist, disclaimer. We're not but, an economist. You know, but, it seems like when the economy's in trouble, everyone invests in the US dollar. And when the US is in trouble, everyone invests in the US dollar. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is we talked about how scientists, we have to be very careful in not saying the wrong thing mm. because then we'll get blamed for it. Economists don't have that fear at all. They're constantly making these super bold predictions about the next 20 years of financial forecasts yeah. and whether there's definitely a recession and when it's coming. They, they are right most of the time, I think. But so are scientists. Really it just takes it. one mistake and uh, we're, we're, we're doomed. But we're discredited forever. We need to learn mm. more from economists in, in That's some ways. That's true. It's not the ones that go to jail, but we need to learn more. Economists, teach us your tricks. Please, please. <laughs> let us know how to be more effective communicators that don't uh, get in their own ways. So this mini microscope... Mm is amazing because it's 3D printed, it's super cheap. And this is a real dilemma that I'm in all the time personally Mm -hmm. because people come to me and ask about how to get their kids involved in science. It's really exciting. My son, my daughter, my child wants to learn more about science Mm -hmm. and they want to see the the natural world. So they want a microscope. And Mm -hmm. these microscopes, all of them are pretty good. Yep, but okay. the cost of entry for someone who's casually interested in it, I would say is maybe not really worth it if it's the first time around. Right, okay. Like, will you be able to tell the difference between a $500 versus a $1,000 microscope when you're first starting out? Of course not. In fact, all you'll That's probably a lot see. Of money to spend. All you'll probably see is just your eyelashes when you're starting because you, you just don't know how to That's use true. it, engage it. You know, like <laughs> always. It's, it's just get the mm. get the cheapest thing. But the thing is, mm-hmm. the cheapest thing is still a few hundred dollars. And that would be more around the amount I would be willing to spend. <laughs> few, but, but that's still not a small investment, <laughs> no, right? And no. and if it's so much, I'm very cautious about telling parents to spend a couple hundred bucks mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. instill an interest in science because so much of it is available free, right? Yes. Now, this isn't free, no. but four US dollars gets four pretty US close. Mm-hmm. It's pretty close, mm-hmm. right? It's like a decent, decent, uh, well, it's not a decent meal, it's a cheap meal, right? Depending on the economy. It's a, <laughs> a cheap meal these days. Average to above average like a meal a co- for a kid. Coffee price. Coffee, let's say. Yes. Yeah, coffee. A carton of milk, a pint of milk. This is very approachable. I could recommend mm-hmm. this and say, hey, you could just start with this. And mm-hmm. if your kid really likes it, you want greater resolving power or greater resolution okay. or yep. infrared signals, mm-hmm. then you can kind of invest in more things. But mm-hmm. this is a really easy way. I think that's a great direction. Everything's moving. In. Very cool. I mean, can you imagine if uh, you're in school and you do a project where you piece together a 3D printed microscope. How cool of a project is well, that? You're asked to make your own microscope yeah. in school and you can Fantastic. have something that actually works, not yeah. just something janky. That not made out of toilet rolls. <laughs> is, is, that a, is that a common schematic toilet roll? Because <laughs> I'm not, not really sure. <laughs> My daughter's favorite telescope. Your daughter's favorite telescope mm. is made out of toilet rolls. Okay. <laughs> Not, not quite relatable, maybe, but let us know if your kids also use uh, toilet rolls in creative ways. Please tell us in the comments below. From space and looking at space images to something mm-hmm. that is quite crazy, something that I didn't know about at all. And it's basically this term called space debris or space junk. And it's right. not debris in terms of loose asteroids mm-hmm. or meteors or planetary mm-hmm. waste. It's junk that humans have created and brought up. And this article is a little bit old now. It's from the conversation. But it basically is how I caught on to this before finding another Washington right. Post article, which mm-hmm. made a space junk into like an old school space invaders game. And you have to like move a spaceship and shoot the junk. Anyway, it's cool. I'll, I'll send you the link. It's really cool. <laughs> that sounds super fun. <laughs> that's, that's, that's their hook, right? To talk about right, this really okay. serious issue of space junk space that make invaders, it into a yeah. space invaders game. Mars is littered with 
over 15,000 pounds, which uh, is over 7,000 kilograms of human trash from 50 years of robotic exploration. This is Mars alone. Yeah. Right, just Mars. The place that we want to go live at eventually, if you believe everyone who's working on these Mars missions. We've already dumped this much trash there. Yeah. That's a lot. So that's shocking. When I tell you this, what's yeah. the first question that comes to mind? When I tell you, hey, there's like this much trash on Mars. What, what would you want to know? What do you do with trash? What do you do with trash? Yeah. What do you do with trash when it's produced? Okay. So before yeah. we get there, let's talk about what kind of trash it is. Is it like Mars bar wrappers? Is it like, like what, what what kind of trash are we talking about? Like, Who is it goes to Mars and eats a Mars bar? <laughs> it's been on the nose, Someone isn't it? It's very on it's the nose. It's been on the nose. <laughs> Mars bar. <laughs> Mars bar. <laughs> A little too on the nose. But maybe uh, robots are not without their irony, right? Maybe the automation thought this is a good idea, the, the algorithm. What's the explorer picked up now? Oh, it's a Mars bar robot. The thing is, I, I would love to say that was like a witty pun that I planned out. Just that was the first thing that the came to mind. The, the, are you a Mars bar fan? Or? I did like them, but I felt terrible after eating it. I, think I prefer Snickers. Snickers is a more substantial thing. We're not yeah. sponsored by either one. No, right? not sponsored this by either is one. clearly not a sponsored podcast. No, no. And and I've been, I've been sugar-free for four months and I, I'm hating every second of it but i'm sugar free so I can't, there are I can't. no mars bars or snickers in jack's future no, no none at all none at all okay so what kind of trash are we talking about so yeah, not what kind not, of trash? not everyday trash mm-hmm. thankfully i think right because it's yeah. not like cans and that kind of stuff yeah so if you read the article it's inactive spacecrafts mm-hmm. aluminium wheels mm-hmm. screws and drill bits oh, drill bits right so it's like mechanical things like mm. it's things that you would use to build the spacecraft or right. maintain it yeah and yeah. the return trip if there were any people involved in any space mission mm-hmm. you always want to like shed weight so right. i don't know if you've if you see any of the space movies like Apollo 13 or interstellar or anything like that it's coming off. it's like yep. a, a little yeah. explosion and a bit falls She's off like, yeah, and then they keep right. going because mm-hmm. they want to reduce weight as they yeah. move to yeah. be even more agile and hopefully use the earth or the the moon's mm-hmm. orbit to kind of mm-hmm. leverage that and that that force right. all of this stuff every time a little canister of, mm. of fuel is 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 kind of dropped off or or rockets kind yep. of fire yep. That doesn't just go away. That no. that sticks around. That hangs around. So the first question is, does it matter? Does it matter if all of this space trash is out there floating around? I'm guessing it's dangerous to other other equipment, right? If it's just floating around or okay, coming through space. All right. So mm-hmm. if we assume that there's no mm-hmm. life form out there, mm-hmm. no extraterrestrial life mm-hmm. that can be damaged by this, which is a huge if, but so far we haven't found obvious evidence that there is extraterrestrial life forms out there. The fact that just having all this trash floating out there without anyone being affected by, in theory, sounds okay. But you've raised the right point that we have a we have a vested interest, right? Mm-hmm. So we are putting things into space that yeah, aren't junk. Of course. To satellites. Yeah. Everything that beams signals mm-hmm. for cell phones mm-hmm. for our for our military communications, you know, for our cell towers, all that kind of stuff. That is reliant on pretty much having an unperturbed path of these satellites. Right. Mm-hmm. And that once you send a satellite into space, which is not mm-hmm. a cheap thing, it stays damage free but this space junk is now becoming an issue of our own making and that these are pretty small things like a little drill bit could be like 10 centimeters yeah but it's damaging satellites mm-hmm. it's also mm-hmm. damaging james webb has been damaged in a oh, small okay. portion right. by this space mm-hmm. debris as mm-hmm. has hubble because of course if it's floating out there if it enters the earth's orbit for instance mm-hmm. that would be something that directly comes in contact with with satellites that are in the earth's orbit as well it is traveling at a speed where it doesn't have to be a an asteroid or a meteor to... Right, it's still dangerous. It's still yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Without knowing anything about it, what do you think would be a strategy that we could use to rope it back or clean the trash out? A giant magnet. 
a giant <laughs> magnet that sounds like Doctor <laughs> Doctor Evil from Austin Powers. Well, you're not that far off because the the first thing, <laughs> a giant magnet. Is that is that your is that your only only answer? Or some way to collect it, collect, right? Okay. Or at least combine it together so it's less of a. So so this is why. If I'm, you can't bring it back, then bring it together so it can be traced oh, or at least right. Organize the clutter before you decide. At least it's neat. <laughs> how I clean my house: the basket method, a, a giant bin <laughs> that everything goes towards, but you just leave the bin in space. I mean, it'd be great if you could bring it back, but so researching this article has made doing this whole podcast worthwhile for mm-hmm. me. That's enough okay. to validate because it's super interesting reading about this, right? You're making less stupid comments than I am. <laughs> okay, well, well, hopefully, as you read more, you'll feel less stupid. But I think it's all valid. These are questions okay, people are asking. Magnet. The first fact that we need to get out there is that, to my understanding, mm-hmm. currently not a single piece of space trash has ever been successfully retrieved from space it's terrible so any idea is a good idea at this yeah, point because okay. we have not been successful at all right? Some, someone out there is going why didn't we think of a giant magnet well okay so, so now the giant magnet is one is one thing i don't know how giant they're talking but but it's generally metal, magnetic but, you know. coils is one proposed solution all right, right. okay it is yes, a, it is a yes. thing okay but again today not a single piece of space trash in orbit has okay. been removed and we're talking about estimating half a million objects between one and 10 centimeters of space trash are orbiting Mm -hmm. Earth right Mm -hmm. now. So this is something that we do need to think about long-term because it's not going to be half a million in 10 years' time. Now, the next strategy is something that I know won't work. Again, not my wheelhouse, but they've called it the chaser satellite method. They send a satellite in to chase the space trash (laughs) and hopefully approximate its speed and and, and catch up to it. Right. And then through magnetic coils or otherwise, subsume that piece of trash. Okay. But then what happens to that satellite? Does that then become a piece of trash in, in space as well? Like what happens to that? Yeah, it becomes its own piece of trash. Yeah, so I've actually called this the cane toad method where to get rid of pests, we introduce <laughs> cane toads in Australia. And now cane toads are universally reviled as the worst pest in all of Australia. It's way worse than the original pest. I don't even know what the original pest... Some kind of beetle, wasn't it? Was it? Okay, it doesn't matter. Like some kind of pest on sugar cane. Okay, but yeah. now cane toads are way, yeah. way worse of a problem, mm. specifically in Australia. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. We literally have... Lots and lots of classes where the whole class is a lab tech going out there and collecting dozens of the hundreds of cane toads and taking them back to do experiments. Sorry if you're a cane toad activist. Many of them around. You, you never yeah. know. Apologies I think I did if you're a cane, cane toad, toad dissection in high school. Exactly. So mm. so it's it's to that point where high mm. schools are very okay just collecting hundreds and thousands of cane toads to do experiments on because there's that big a pet. You don't want the satellite to then become the cane toad, right? Then no. if you don't want to you don't want to send a, a chaser chaser satellite to chase down the original <laughs> chaser satellite. That kind of has that kind of vibe to it, doesn't it? It's a stretch. Any non-Australian listener the cane toad doesn't have a predator. Yeah, so it's part of part of the problem. Part of the problem. Mm. And frogs look kind of cute if they're the right color, but cane these toads. Are, these are ugly, ugly creatures. Well, beauty is the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. but to most people and everyone I know, they think of cane toads as, as pretty ugly looking. So have you, have you seen the stories where the dogs like lick the poison glands on the? Yes. So the cane toads also, yeah. on top of its extra charms, yeah. It has poisonous glands on its back. Dogs and pets, unassuming pets, go around and try and eat cane toes or, or think yeah, it's so food. It's, it's very, very dangerous for them, but some of them have learned to sort of just get a little bit of a high from it. Dogs? Yeah, yeah. Oh. some dogs. They're, and they, this should have been the news article that we covered. They just take in a little bit of the poison and then they're sort of passed out. Get a high. Know, lying. Yeah, they, they get high from it. Goodness. 
Yeah, it's a thing. There there are better ways to spend your time. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe we should try it. (laughs) Next week's podcast. For our 100th episode, we will bring in Natanka live in studio. Special. Don't don't offer that. And the the very last strategy they've offered, Mm. and again, Mm. I repeat, not a single piece of space trash in orbit has yet been successfully removed from Mm -hmm. space, is a giant laser, which is not that far away from your Dr. Evil solution. Giant (laughs) magnets, giant lasers, or the realm of science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a huge problem that not everyone is talking about, and Mm -hmm. it's getting worse because last year, not last year, two years ago, in 2021, Mm -hmm. apparently there was a defunct satellite that was Russian, and Russia just basically blew it up. Oh, right. They didn't try and decommission it. They just (laughs) blew it up. (laughs) Decommission. And the, oh, they did decommission it very brutally. That involves a service contract, Jack. That's a, a never-ending that service contract. They were contract not willing to pay. They were not willing to pay. And now there's all so this So they took the blow-it-up method. The blow-it-up method. <laughs> Given that, again, not a single piece of space trash to date has been removed from space. But it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? Who would have thought that? Yeah, it's terrible. We've got a trash problem on, on Earth and in space as well. I'm by no means an environmentalist to anywhere near the level that I think I need to be. Mm-hmm. I'm conscious of recycling. But beyond that, I don't really really know what i'm supposed to be doing within my media sphere to kind of think about right. environmentally friendly practices it's and hard to it can be hard to know climate change is a real thing and it, very extreme weather events are happening more and more in australia we've always had extreme weather events and it's kind of part of our national identity in many ways mm. and many of the old school poems are all about the hottest of summers and the driest of heat waves and they're becoming more frequent they're becoming more mm. frequent and so whenever i see news articles about Different ways of coming at this problem mm-hmm. because a lot of it is just trying to communicate the severity of the issue or trying to mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. climate change to make sure that people know it's real, which is a really difficult challenge. Yeah, it's hard. Mm. Partly because it wasn't called climate change originally. It was mm-hmm. called global warming. Extreme weather goes either way, right? That's you go right. really That's warm right. or really cold. Mm-hmm. And when it's freezing and you're getting freezing blizzards, you're no, thinking... It doesn't feel very warm to me. Yeah, It's mm-hmm. really a science communication problem. It yep. is. Well, it is. It's a massive science communication So whenever problem. I see a slightly different mm-hmm. approach on it, I really pay attention that That's for the next article, which is the last article we'll talk about today, which is our crossover of the week, Mm. which is all about what France is doing. We're a coalition of scientists in France behind a program called atlas which is conducted by the French National Center for Scientific Research and the French Atomic Energy Commission. Two numbers here I'll give you. Mm-hmm. 70 million genes. Right, They're okay. going to map 70 million genes mm-hmm. of underwater species okay. to try and help protect all the vast sea life. Okay. And by sequencing that many genes, mm-hmm. they will know, first of all, what lives in that sea. Right. Because most of the life that you can mm-hmm. visibly see mm-hmm. is an analogy or metaphor to the visible spectra that we talked about before with infrared. Most of life you can't actually see. It's That's microscopic. Right. Yeah. So if you just say, oh, well, there's this many fish and this many things, you're very, very vastly underestimating all the diversity yeah, of life absolutely. within an ecosystem. Absolutely. And you can't just put those things back mm-hmm. and it's going to fix itself. Okay, so within my area of microbiology, there is this whole field that's been pushed for really aggressively in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. which is using what we call culture-independent techniques. In the past, unless it grew little spots on a plate or it's a bit of fungus on a piece mm-hmm. of toast, okay. we didn't know that the microbe was there. But now we're doing DNA sequencing, just mm-hmm. like this project mm-hmm. here. And if this DNA sequence pinpoints organism being present, then we know it's present. Mm-hmm. We can estimate how much mm-hmm. of it is present there. All right. So they're doing this to catalog all the things living within its immediate aquatic right. environments. They've advertised it as having a project to characterize 70 million genes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the second number I'll give you is 41 million euro is the amount of okay. funding this mm-hmm. agency has received. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 41 million euro to sequence 70 million genes. Mm-hmm. What are your first impressions? Oh, I think it sounds like a great initiative. 
I mean, to to really use up to date science to tackle a problem like this, I think that's that's great. Forty one million euros seems like a lot of money, but when it comes to the breadth and the the scope of this project, I don't think it's actually that much. What do you think? Well, the only way I can make sense of money, because again, mm. we're coming from a very poor Australian dollar exchange rate currently, so I have no idea what 41 million euro is right now. <laughs> Where the exchange rate theme came from. So the other thing I, so, I can mm. compare it to is a previous scientific endeavors mm-hmm. of somewhat of a comparable scale. Mm-hmm. And the most famous one is the Human Genome Project. Right. But the official project cost $2.7 billion. Right. Okay. And that was to sequence one single genome. So mm-hmm. a genome is an organism's entire mm-hmm. DNA blueprint. Mm-hmm. Every single DNA base bit it has within its cells. So that one human genome, which wasn't just one person's genome, it was like a composite of many different people's DNA. Mm. $2.7 billion. Mm-hmm. Now they're claiming to be able to sequence all of these aquatic organisms mm-hmm. genomes which presumably aren't human they're proposing to sequence all of that for 41 million euro which my math isn't great but that's a fraction of 2.7 billion how's that come about cost has come down so we've been talking about technology improving and things being scalable able to be done faster more efficiently that's you know uh, for a long time people have been talking about this sub one thousand dollar genome sequencing mm. and yeah i'm not sure what, what current going cost is costs have definitely come down meaning the scale of this this project a lot cheaper to run can be doable mm-hmm. and if you read into how they've been able to achieve this and bring the cost mm-hmm. of sequencing down it's really fascinating because it comes down to a technological problem mm-hmm. not so much a biological problem in some ways right so in the, some ways so, oh uh, yeah yeah that's right so the, so the tech behind it mm, is the biology is the same it's, mm. it's very much the same principles as used in a semiconductor technology mm-hmm. and microchips and trying to that's right your make laptop things, becomes smaller yeah trying to make more things happen at the same mm-hmm. time there are tens of billions of those same things happening at the same time right, within yeah. that same thing mm-hmm. so that everything is just that that much more efficient it's working mm-hmm. in parallel these next gen dna sequencing platforms which is not what was done in the original human genome project the human genome project pretty much used sanger sequencing right. through mm-hmm. and through mm-hmm. how many bases can a sanger sequencing reaction go through Ooh. and do about 500 to to 700 yeah if you're optimistic yeah. right so yeah so i guess if you run both the sometimes forward, a bit more if you do two reactions mm. at once forward and reverse you yeah. might be able to get like a, th- a thousand base pairs right yeah. kilo base at the same mm. time now the next gen sequencing reactions it's mm-hmm. still about that for one single reaction right it's not like that much more that much less but they can do so many of those reactions at the same time so the cost of it has come down a lot mm-hmm. so technologically speaking mm-hmm. 41 million euro to sequence 70 million genes mm-hmm. is doable. Mm-hmm. Depends, though, my follow-up question would be which genes, right? Yeah, I'm curious to know. <laughs> so we can classify organisms down to different levels of specificity. That's correct, yes. And if we say humans, homo sapiens, mm-hmm. homo is the genus mm-hmm. and sapiens is the species. That's correct, yeah. That is actually not that informative anymore mm-hmm. because especially in my area of microbes, we go beyond the species level. Right, right? Okay. So COVID now is a mm. variance, right? Mm-hmm. Subvariance. So mm-hmm. the species is not enough anymore, right? Mm-hmm. But if we were to do it to the genus level, we mm-hmm. just have to sequence one single gene, the right, 16S okay. RNA gene. It's a ribosomal right, RNA gene. Mm. So that's actually really easy to, to massify because mm-hmm. you just need to look at one single big gene mm-hmm. and that's got enough information to tell us what it is. Yes. And there's an enormous database of this, mm-hmm. these gene sequences mm-hmm. and it's really easy to look up, right? Yeah. So that's, where, that's yeah. what's pushed a lot of the work in my field mm. for this kind of advance. In this case, that doesn't sound like that's what they're doing. It sounds like they're sequencing the whole genome. It sounds like that, yeah. 
Because and I guess then you would start by looking at a subset of mm. genes. I'm I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I'm guessing there would there would be a subset that you would initially look at. Yep. yep. And then branch out from there. The other part of this project is not just we want to know what's there. Mm. Let's just catalog everything that's mm-hmm. there right now mm-hmm. and monitor its progress over time to see how it's shifted. Right, because they they talk about diversity within the species, right? That's right, and mm. and check the evolution and evolutionary pressures over mm-hmm. time. And to That's do right. that, you probably can't just do one gene. Mm. Although within microbes, you kind of mm-hmm. can, right? Because mm-hmm. with the microbes, that's the RNA. Yeah, you kind of have a lot well more insight than, mm. than you would think. But yeah, I guess, first of all, they need to identify everything there, don't they? Yes. And then from there, they need to look at diversity within the gene subset once they make those identifications. So they have to catalogue everything first, it sounds like, and then mm. go from there and look at diversity. Yes. With the idea being that a population that has more diversity in the genome is less prone to or less susceptible to extinction, right? Yes, mm. yes. If we knew what lived in certain ecosystems, mm-hmm. if there was, a some kind of, heaven forbid, a natural disaster of some mm-hmm. sort, and they had to restore the ecosystem in some way, help it recover in some way, yeah. this would give you much more information to be able mm-hmm. to do that because mm-hmm. the things they're identifying presumably that's not the only location in the world that these organisms are living in right so they can go in there and try right. and recreate that ecosystem or do a lot of interesting experiments to maybe recreate that ecosystem mm. in in vitro in yep. you know, some kind of contained environment and you always think that tiny little microbe doesn't affect you until it does in some obscure way right Un- until mm. it does so let's let's think about this in reverse direction so if we say 41 million euro compared to 2.7 billion sounds like mm. a good deal mm. does 41 million sound like it's not enough. Yeah, sometimes I think that doesn't sound like enough. Let's acknowledge that it is a lot of money, mm. right? 41 million mm-hmm. euro. And, of course. And whenever you see press releases of these projects, it mm-hmm. sounds like an obscene amount of money. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. And someone will go, oh, why are you investing in that? How come How come you haven't done this already or made this breakthrough, et, right. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Because the pace of innovation is very slow and unpredictable. Yes. Science is expensive. And in our area, most mm-hmm. of that money goes towards really fancy equipment and machines that mm-hmm. push against the limit of resolution or That's information, right. mm-hmm. not towards scientists. Like the scientist's salary is, is laughable relative spoiler, to the... Spoiler alert. We don't get paid that much. <laughs> depending on the country as well, scientists, I think. Scientists, yeah. Yeah, depending yeah. on the country. So well, in Australia, we, we get paid very well compared to other countries. So. Yeah. Yeah, mm. the asterisk is compared to other countries. Compared right? to so other countries. Mm. Compared to the amount of work that mm. we have to do and the amount of thinking we have to do. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, yeah. it's not like I can retire mm. at 30 kind of money mm-hmm. by no means, mm. right? It's not a small amount of money, but no, is I it mean, underestimating the cost? That's what I, I, I read this yeah, and I think, right. is it underestimating mm. how much it's going to cost and what are going to be the knock-on effects of that long term? I mean, thinking about a risk, you know, a research grant maybe being in the realm of, say, a few hundred thousand, a few years project, it did. 41 million doesn't seem like a huge amount of money. Mm. Which, if we take a full circle mm. in our crossover of the week, will the life of this project live beyond this 41 million euro? Because it kind of has to, for it to yeah. actually have any impact, it needs to, yeah, funding right. will stop, yeah. but its findings will it live on. It needs to keep going on, doesn't it? I that's mean, right. So, yeah. so what would it look like, I guess? So it could get put into some kind of database. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a sampling occurs. Yep. That's right. Every certain number of years to then study the changes that have occurred. Who stores these samples? Mm. Like if it's actual real samples mm-hmm. they're collecting, mm-hmm. what responsibility do they have to keep right. this yeah. alive? You know, like mm. frozen or in storage or something like that. Well, yeah. What is that? And much like the service contract discussion mm-hmm. we're having with software, if you don't factor it into your budget, mm-hmm. 
then one day it's going to all come crashing down. Yeah. Right? One day it's, you're not going to have enough wherewithal to go in there and fix that problem because mm-hmm. you've mm-hmm. just neglected this enormous set of That's data right. for yep. so long. You thought mm-hmm. once you collected it, that was it. And this is an issue that came up in the news recently where biologists became laughing stocks, right? Because of this issue. Because it comes back to how we think about and use very, very simple software mm-hmm. tools. Mm-hmm. In this case, that tool is Microsoft Excel. And so this is the headline. <laughs> Autocorrect errors in Excel still creating genomics headache. And that is a very, very mild understatement for the extent of the problem. Headache right? is not descriptive enough. When we report on genes, mm-hmm. we use gene names. We don't That's say correct. the full name of the gene. Mm-hmm. It has an abbreviated form of yeah, some sort. So for those listeners who aren't, you know, aren't sort of in the field, then each gene has an identifier and we use that to talk about the gene. That's right. And the person who made that initial discovery of the gene usually has naming rights to it. That's correct. But that doesn't mean that that name will stick. And right? There's some crazy gene names out there as well, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, so the one, yeah. the Sonic Hedgehog is one that Sonic always Hedgehog comes one always comes to mind. Whoever that intellectual, that highly educated intellectual mm-hmm. was, They've got naming rights to it mm-hmm. and people kind of roll with it until it's discovered by someone else with more pull in the field and maybe they might rename I, it. I've actually had this issue personally where, oh, yeah, yeah a, a competitor in the field sort of renamed the gene. Oh, and, 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 and did that, that stick? Is, is that the gene It stuck now? for a while. And then, and then Hugo had to step in. So Hugo is yeah. a conglomerate trying to standardize the naming names. system because names. actually it's a it's a huge problem. These genes, these proteins, the outcome of the of the genes biologically, they can have different names. So to find literature and what you're working on, you might have certain reagents within the lab and they're labeled according to one name that it's given, and then you don't realize because it's got these other names and it, it gets very confusing. When I was working on this protein, it had about five different names. I went and I spoke to someone at a conference. I told them what I worked on and they didn't even realize that we were working on the same mm. on the same protein uh, because they called us something completely different. Okay, so that's one mm. obvious issue. That's a nightmare for search engine optimization, let mm. alone just yeah, being able to true. find that's true, yeah. know what you're mm-hmm. talking about. The naming of some of these genes also is very tricky to mm-hmm. manage in, in software. We're not using super fancy software to catalog this amazing information, right? We're using like freely available tools that our institutions give us access to. That's so right. in this case, it's Microsoft Excel. Yeah, if it was a custom genomic yeah. browser with very, mm. very tailored things and that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense right well, most of us aren't bioinformaticians excel was changing the gene names without anyone knowing right okay are ones that look suspiciously like prompts for excel to oh, order correct no. <laughs> and the two examples are given here march one right okay of course looks like the first mm-hmm. of march mm-hmm. right and the gene sept four Mm-hmm. looks like the 4th of September. So it gets right. renamed to dates. It's terrible. And if you were then saying filtering, because mm. of course there would be gene entries with a field that has dates in it, right? Yep. You got the date of curation, mm-hmm. data was added to the database, mm-hmm. and you sorted by date. Mm-hmm. We sorted by mm-hmm. a different parameter. It's just huge chaos. Yeah, you might go, I mean, these are huge amounts of information. Often in this case, it'll be a database or, you know, an attachment onto a publication where they've made certain identifications and they've published them and the attachment is an Excel spreadsheet. You go through and you say, oh, okay, this is very interesting. Is my particular protein or my particular gene of interest involved? And you do a search for it because you're not going to go combing through it. So you do a search and, and you may not find what you're looking for because it's been changed. And the statistics on this, this was an article mm. a little while ago, but pretty much said that 
it was hundreds of publications. Yep. Okay. Like a couple of hundred. Yeah. Right. Are reporting incorrect gene names. Yeah, it's pretty which terrible. Which is terrible. Isn't it? Yeah. Which is absolutely terrible. terrible. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, this is an issue that we can hope to rectify mm-hmm. through initiatives like Hugo. Mm-hmm. But again, all it takes is a new gene to be discovered. Yeah. And how that's regulated mm-hmm. is pretty mm-hmm. unclear. Hopefully, Hugo has some more standardized ideas yeah, about that. I mean, that. again, it's a guideline that they're publishing. You should try and adhere to it, but. I'm not sure how rigorous journals are with making sure you're adhering to it. I don't know. And mm. the, these are the indirect costs yeah. that are not factored into those 41 million euro funding yeah. announcements. Yeah. It's sustaining the project That's beyond right. its initial mm-hmm. lifespan. Like mm-hmm. this all takes time to figure out. Yeah. Like, someone figured this yeah. out and had to go in and fix it. Yeah, you know? it's awful, isn't Pro- it? Probably mm-hmm. for free. Mm-hmm. And so these, these are the indirect things that keep coming up mm-hmm. throughout the lifespan of any kind of work you mm-hmm. do. There's always unexpected costs and unexpected ways of managing. It. And the more we see these problems occurring again and again, the more systematic we have to think at the inception of the project to mitigate those issues Mm. long-term. And that's what I'm trying to think about more and more in my work. How do I Mm -hmm. make the things I'm doing live on beyond my sphere of influence right now? Mm. How do I make an idea stick that other people want to take it on and run Mm -hmm. with it? Okay. And in my area, it's teaching. Mm -hmm. How do I design a kind of class that has lots of potential for people to teach in very similar ways as mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and to have all the essence of what I'm trying to get across right. without it okay. having to be me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really mm-hmm. interesting idea and uh, it's it's something that doesn't, doesn't have obvious solutions. But you can see it affects every single aspect of yeah, everything we talk sure. about today, for right? Sure. It's really, really interesting. And on that note, that's the conclusion of mm-hmm. all the articles we have today. I don't think a single article today we've mentioned was actually within either of our no. wheelhouses, <laughs> right? Hopefully, it's still an interesting exercise for you because it's certainly interesting for me, I found, mm. and learned so much from it yeah me if too. you're listening to this on one of your favorite podcast platforms please know that there are other podcast platforms you can find us on all the big ones apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher and also we are filming everything for youtube so you can watch the full episode on youtube as well this is crossover connections i'm jack and i'm amanda thank you for watching and listening we'll hopefully connect with you next time around